Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. Here at Libations and Lamentations, we believe that all people are theologians, whether they like it or not. As such, we hope this podcast will help to refine and shape the theology of the Church, particularly lay men and women, toward a more orthodox and articulate expression. Welcome back, podcast listeners, to Libations and Lamentations. This is episode two. I'm AJ Nolte, here with my co-host, Jay Thomas. Say hi, Jay. Hello, everybody. Before we get too far, let's open with a word of prayer. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. O God, who wonderfully created, and yet more wonderfully restored, the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed our pilot, our first episode, and the bonus episode on Lancelot Andrews and had a good Lancelot Andrews feast day. Now we're picking up the Catechism again, and today we're going to look at questions 19 through 37. This covers really two main topics. Um, What are creeds? and the purpose of creeds and the use of creeds, and the primacy of scripture. And the next week we'll start, or next next podcast, whenever that comes out, we'll start into uh, d- discussing the Apostles' Creed. So, um, as we get started here, I think we see in this section of the podcast that the Anglican faith, as described in the Catechism, is a biblical, creedal, apostolic, and Catholic faith. Uh, and so those are all core elements of the identity of the Anglican Church and the Anglican tradition that really come out in these questions. So before we get into the questions specifically, it might be helpful to just define some terms. Biblical, I would think for most people, is probably a pretty straightforward term. When we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the canons of the Old and New Testaments. Um, and we'll get into what that means a little bit further and, and the definition of scripture, because actually there you do get into something that's a little bit more um, contested. But the Bible is a basic uh, element of, of the church. When we talk about apostolic, um, we mean the teaching and rule of life of the apostles and those who came after them. So in a sense, being rooted in the apostolic uh, faith, the apostolic tradition, and recognizing that we have our descent from, in some sense, the, the apostles. That's very concretely and institutionally reflected in Anglicanism. But there's also a sense in which we're trying to walk according to the teachings of the apostles. And as we'll see when we talk about scripture and and the creeds and how all this stuff came together, that apostolic aspect and the biblical aspect are actually closely related, particularly when we start looking at the New Testament. Creedal? What is a creed? The word credo means I believe. So when we say that we have a creedal faith, it's a faith that is bounded by a doctrinally authoritative statement of belief derived from Scripture and the teachings of the Apostolic Fathers. But AJ, isn't Scripture enough? Well, so I think, um, as we'll, we'll talk about with, when we talk about creeds and primacy of Scripture, part of the benefit of a creed is that whenever you're reading Scripture, there's always a lens through which you read it, right? You know, we can say Scripture alone, you know, that all we're going to focus on is Scripture. But we always bring something to the text, Whenever you're reading anything, you you bring something to the text. And usually, if you don't think about what you're bringing to the text, what you may bring to the text is your own experience, you know, how you're feeling at that given moment, the culture that you've been formed in, etc. 
Now, that's not a terrible thing. I mean, God put us in the, the place that we are and made us the people we are for a reason. But if that's the only lens that we see Scripture through, then we're going to see Scripture through us colored glasses. And what the creeds do, I think, is they take us out of our own heads um, and they connect us to the church historically, and they also kind of give us some bounds and some, some boundaries for, as we're reading scripture, if we come up with an interpretation, um, we can say, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to con- be consistent with stuff that I've, I've read. And I think as you kind of study scripture more and delve more and more into it, you'll start to see that really the creeds are a distillation and summation of what's in scripture already. So if you're reading something and you see this doesn't seem consistent with the creeds, as you read other parts of scripture and let scripture interpret itself, what you'll find is that uh, the creeds are, are more often than not a more accurate reflection of what scripture is saying than the interpretation you might have. So that's the, the benefit of creeds. Did you want to add anything to that, Jared? No, I think that's a great summation. The idea is that when we use creeds, we're not using them to supplant scripture. And it's not a you know, something additional to scripture that we would believe outside of any type of context that the early church didn't know. Rather, the creeds are a, a pretty clear, concise summation of the essence of the faith. Um, so everything in them is, you know, it really declares what God has revealed in Holy Scripture. Um, and that's actually what, you know, question 20 in the Catechism says. You know, the purpose of creeds is to declare, safeguard God's truth about himself, ourselves, and creation as he has revealed it in Holy Scripture. And I think that ties in neatly with the next uh, term that I wanted to define here, which is the term Catholic. We're going to use this term Catholic a lot, a little bit in this section, but a lot more as we move forward, uh, as we move forward with the podcast. So it's probably worth defining the term a little bit. By Catholic, we don't mean Roman Catholic. Um, the Roman Catholics would certainly claim to Catholicity, um, and we can talk about that at some point if it comes up in the Catechism or maybe in a bonus episode um, at some point moving forward. But when we mean Catholic, we, mean not, we don't specifically and particularly mean Roman Catholic. What is meant by Catholic in this context is that we are seeking to be in union and continuity with the Church as a whole, past, present, and future. Part of that is Scripture. So I think it's hard to be Catholic in that small-c Catholic sense without having a deep and profound reverence for Scripture. Once you start getting off of that scriptural base and you start adding things to um, your, your faith that contradict what's in Scripture uh, and that aren't derived from it in some sense, in some sense is a, is a tricky um, part because we have very different senses depending on which church you're from, but in some sense there's, there's a, a connection to Scripture. Um, and certainly, it's nothing that outright contradicts Scripture uh, should be accepted as, as doctrine. Um, so that's an important part of Catholicity. But there's also a sense of having a common creed, a common statement of belief. Everyone has a creed. Uh, every church has a creed, uh, statements of belief um, that they would all sort of agree on. And the benefit of the creeds that we're looking at is that they are representative of small c Catholicism. We'll get into that as we move a little bit further further down. Um, and then I would also say uh, some things that can be marks of Catholicity are continuities of forms of worship um, and continuities of sort of inst- institutional continuities. And those four uh, definitions, common, common creeds, common scripture, um, 
you know, dissent in some sense, institutional continuity, and also continuity of, of the rule of life or, or uh, worship or liturgy, are descriptions of Catholicity that are given by a very early church father from the 150s or 160s called uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, um, who almost certainly want to do a celebration of his feast day. So we'll have to look that up and figure out what it is because he's, uh, he's kind of an important dude in the development of the church. But that, that's his definition of Catholicity. When you have people coming out with this heresy called Gnosticism, which at some point we'll, we'll talk about is kind of this idea of uh, the evil of the flesh and the supremacy of the soul over physical material things and possibly even the primacy of your emotions over reality, um, which feels a lot more modern than it actually is. Um, Arius is responding to these people and saying, you're not small C Catholic. You're not in continuity with the church. And these are the things that he says they don't have. So when we talk about Catholicity, that's, that's sort of what we mean. Jay, I know that ecclesiology and Catholicity is a, is a big thing for you. Is there anything you want to throw in on that? I think the big thing I would want to focus on is in the Protestant world that I grew up in, we spent a lot of time talking about the universal church. I think the Catholic church, or the church Catholic, is actually the expression of the universal church that we were seeking, that we were trying to talk about. It's the actual physical manifestation of the church, physical and visible, around the world, united with some pretty core grounding principles. And really, what are the marks of Catholicity? But primarily, Scripture as interpreted by the creeds. And that's a perfect segue into our discussion of uh, Scripture and the creeds, which are the, the two main topics uh, for today's um, podcast. So you'll see as we're going through this, um, we have kind of structured and organized things a little bit differently than the way the catechism does. Not because the way the catechism does is, is necessarily wrong, but because um, I think there's there's something to be said for starting out, leading off with the primacy of Scripture, and then from that lens uh, going into the creeds and, and sort of how they fit in. Um, I think the catechism uh, doesn't do that because most of what the catechism is going to be about and most of the way the section is structured is focused on the creeds. But I think particularly um, in a podcast that's reaching out to an audience that is beyond just the Anglican tradition, um, we should probably lay down a little bit of a marker and what we mean when we talk about Scripture, and particularly the idea of the primacy of Scripture. Some of the most intense debates, particularly in Protestant circles, surround this idea of uh, the primacy of Scripture and what Scripture should mean and, and shouldn't mean. Um, you know, I've heard some people say that if you don't have a robust definition of biblical inerrancy, then your theology is inevitably going to slide into liberalism. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. What does that even mean? Um, and and you know, we, we get into these very technical discussions. And sometimes these very technical discussions lead to a lot of cultural food fights about things like, you know, how we should literally or not literally interpret Genesis 1. So I think before we start talking about Scripture, we have to define a little bit what we mean. What is Scripture, and what do we, from the Anglican tradition, and, and particularly from this uh, perspective of the Catechism, mean about the primacy of Scripture? Uh, Jay, you want to uh, lead us off here with, with talking about primacy of Scripture? Absolutely. So coming from our Anglican background, our clear summation of a 
you know, well-reasoned Anglican response to matters of doctrine comes from the Articles of Religion from the Church of England, which I think were written maybe late 1500s, um, 1570s-ish. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and in Article 20, the Articles of Religion describe Scripture as God's Word written. And then earlier in the Articles, Article 6, it talks about Scripture being that which is sufficient for salvation. So as we as Anglicans think about what Scripture is, those are kind of our two parameters. We think about it as that which provides everything we need to know for salvation. It's sufficient. Um, and it's also God's Word written. Now, AJ, what does it mean to say that it's God's Word written? That kind of sounds... That's some old English vernacular there, to say it in that way. Yeah, it is, but I think it's important. Because when we talk about God's Word, really we talk about it in two senses. One is Scripture, and the other is Christ. And how do we know that we can talk about God's Word as Christ? Because that's what Scripture tells us. If we look at John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word there is not Scripture. As we know by the next couple of verses, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. And it says further that all things were created uh, through him. And then later in John, uh, John 1, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Christ is being defined as the word. So Christ then is God's word incarnate. Scripture is God's word written in the sense that it is a, an authoritative, infallible, written account of the redemptive work of God in history. Um, and particularly, I would argue, and I think that, that um, a lot of the church fathers would argue, including the Anglicans who, who wrote this, that every inch of the Bible pertains in some sense also to God's word incarnate. There's no contradiction between the two. They are perfectly complementary. And God's word written and God's word incarnate are in some sense the same word. And if that's true, then we should be able to see God's word, uh, we should be able to see Christ, God's word incarnate, reflected everywhere in God's word written. I think that's crucial as we think about the way we interact with Holy Scripture and how we read Holy Scripture. Um, you know, pretty recently, well, I guess recent depends on when you're actually listening to this episode, but I think roughly spring or winter of 2019, there was a famous megachurch pastor, Andy Stanley, who actually did a sermon series about how we need to disconnect the Old Testament from our understanding of Christianity. Ugh. Now, if you want a good delving into this, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but the Sacramentalist podcast did a whole episode where they dealt with all these topics. So I don't want to do that here today, but what what I think Andy Stanley was, was getting at is he did not realize or didn't know how to read the Old Testament. So he was reading the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and trying to find something to relate to his life. He was reading the story of David and his 30 concubines and trying to find something to relate to his life. You know, he was kind of taking this generic evangelical approach of application of the scripture to your life. Whereas what AJ was just talking about is the point of the Old Testament, really the point of God's word written is to reveal God's word incarnate. So as we read the Old Testament, we need to read it not in terms of, not that it can't apply to our lives, but we, need, we don't need to, we're not supposed to read it specifically as how does this relate to me, but rather 
How does this relate to Christ? I think the Catechism perfectly summarizes and encapsulates this perspective. In question 30 of To Be a Christian, uh, it says the following. The Old Testament is to be read in the light of Christ incarnate, crucified, and risen. And the New Testament is to be read in light of God's revelation to Israel. As St. Augustine says, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And so I think that's really the problem that we have um, with this Old New Testament dichotomy that exists. By the way, Andy Stanley is not the first person to say this. Uh, the last person who was really famous for arguing that we needed to really prominently disconnect the Old and New Testaments, other than John Shelley Spong, who is a um, not particularly orthodox bishop, bishop of the Episcopal Church, uh, was a second century theologian named Marcion, who actually went so far as to argue that there was a war and a conflict between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They're separate gods. And unsurprisingly, Marcion is condemned at a church council for this teaching. So again, this is another reason we need to be connected to the past, right, is because Andy Stanley's coming out with this stuff, and he probably doesn't even know that he is repeating a, se a second century heresy that's been examined and rejected by the church, or why it's been examined and rejected by the church, because we have this very present-oriented approach to theology. Part of the benefit of learning from the past, and also of having things like creeds, is that we can avoid making the same mistake that others have made in the past. So moving from there, if we believe that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are God's word written, how does that influence how we understand the word that's more often thrown about today, inspired? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Because um, a lot of our doctrinal debates come back to about Scripture come back to this question of what we mean by inspired. And I think that um, when we talk about the relationship between Bible, the Bible and Christ, God's word written, God's word incarnate, and we think about the way in which the Bible is produced, we come back to, I think, the nature of God and the nature of God's relationship to us plays a role in the way we should think about biblical inspiration in this sense. God is an inherently relational God. God's nature is Trinitarian, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are in a divine relationship of love from the beginning of time. And the nature of Christ is to bring humanity into that relationship. Christ is the second person of uh, the Trinity, um, you know, begotten of the Father, conceived by the, the Holy Spirit, so there's a full Trinitarian aspect in this, becomes incarnate. And in that incarnation, he brings uh, humanity into relationship with the divine. He's fully God and fully man. God's word written also reflects this relational and incarnational aspect of God. Because God did not simply dictate the Bible in the same way that Muslims believe the Quran was dictated, right? So um, I didn't uh, mention this previously in the, in the pilot, but my background is in studies of, of Islam and Islamic politics and Islamic thought. One of the aspects that's key for that for uh, Muslims is the Quran is the full word of God and is directly inspired by Muhammad according to Islamic thought. So the Quran is something that, you know, God essentially dictates to Muhammad and Muhammad's just a scribe. You know, he's just somebody who's writing down the revelation of God. That's not what we as Christians believe about the Bible. The Bible is inspired by God. It is authoritative and infallible, but it's also written by human authors because God wanted to bring humans into the process of his, his word written. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible is in error. We're not saying anything about um, whether, whether the Bible can um, you know, be in error in matters of history or science or any of that, frankly, because that's not 
as important as the question of you know Christ, but it is relational. Um, the Bible is a there, there's a relational aspect to it, inspired by God, uh, written by man, and that reflects the process of of man being conformed to God, and that's that's part of the process of Scripture's inspiration. Well, I think that's a good place for us to move on now to to the creeds. Because the creeds, when we actually look at them, we're going to start with the Apostles' Creed, which actually predates Scripture, or at least the canonized form of the New Testament. Wait, 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 hold on a second. So you mean when Jesus ascended from, uh, you know, after, after the resurrection, he's walking around on earth and he ascended, he didn't essentially, as he was being taken up to heaven, hand the New Testament to the disciples and say, here you go, guys, this is, this is the canon of scripture, boom. Well, he did, but just <laughs> King James Version, oh, red text, yeah, his, yeah, his, his words in red. Um, by the way, we, we both kind of stole that from um, Michael McKinnon's, um, what is the Anglican Studies podcast? And, yeah, uh, much better podcast than this one yeah. you're listening to right now, actually. So we should we should put links to his episodes on the primacy. Yeah, you might as well turn this one off right now. Go over to there, listen to their whole series, and then once you're done with that, if you haven't had enough of Anglicanism, then you can jump right into AJ and I. Yeah, uh, come back, come back, and hang out with the the laymen over here with our libations. Exactly, which they're pretty good. I'll yeah. throw that out there. Fair enough. So, yeah, so the creeds actually, the Apostles' Creed at the very least, predates the canon of the New Testament. So how can we say that it actually conforms to and declares how God has revealed himself in Holy Scripture? Yeah, so part of the thing to keep in mind about, you know, we're, we're joking about um, Jesus handing the King James Bible with his words in red letters to the, the Apostles, but Jesus did hand them his teaching. He walked with them, he taught them. Their writings are deeply reflective of and influenced by his perspective. Um, and so the the letters that make up the New Testament, we know, are actually written fairly soon after um, he uh, after, after the events of his uh, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Um, but they're written by those who walked with him. And so... Part of the there's a process that happens as people are trying to figure out what aspects um, and what writings go into scripture. Uh, and but part of that process is they're looking at every text and every document that emerges in the early church, um, and they're looking at it through this lens. Number one, can we demonstrate conclusively that it was written by uh, one of the apostles? And number two, does it conform to what we know about the apostles' teachings? So they, they have a concept of what the apostles have taught as they're looking at, is this scripture, is this not scripture? Now, we can say, I think, clearly, at, both as Anglicans and as, as Christians, really, of any sort, that this process is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, and that the Holy Spirit is walking with them. Because as we discussed earlier, you know, God is relational. And so as God's word written is, is being revealed, um, the Holy Spirit is inspiring. Even, not, not just those who wrote the, the writings that become part of the New Testament, but also those who are making the agonizing, difficult decisions of determining what is canonical and what is not canonical. Yeah, and so the there are three creeds. I think now we'll probably jump into what the creeds are and you know, kind of lay the groundwork for where we're going to go next. Um, but there are three primary creeds that the church acknowledges. The first is the Apostles' Creed, 
which literally means it comes from the age of the apostles. Um, its name is not, I don't, I don't think we hear of it referred to as the Apostles' Creed until at least the 8th or 9th century. But it represents um, really kind of the original, what's called the baptismal creed. So when new converts were coming to Christianity, they were actually taken aside and trained in something called the catechumate, which was literally a training ground where they were taught the basic beliefs of Christianity. And then when they were brought forward to the bishop to baptize, he would ask them what they believed. And based on their catech catechumetical training and their decision to follow Christ, they would respond with the Apostles' Creed. And so actually you'll see, whether it's Roman Catholic, Lutheran, or Anglican, or I would assume Eastern Orthodox, pretty much any traditional church today, when they bring someone forward to be baptized, they always profess the Apostles' Creed. And so to that end, it's actually the shortest, um, it's the most concise, um, and because of that, there can be some ambiguity, um, which is why we'll talk about why we have the other creeds, but everything in it is the very clear essence of Scripture. I think before we move on to the Nicene and Athanasian creeds, um, it's one thing to, to really keep in mind about the Apostles' Creed, particularly given in living, living in the times that we do in the 21st century where so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing persecution, is that this is a creed that's born out of persecution. If there is someone who's an informant for the Roman government, and the Roman government at the time is going through one of its periods of cracking down on the Christians, which happened periodically uh, right up until the events that gave rise to the Nicene Creed. So if this is happening, and you say the Apostles' Creed, you say, boldly confess, I believe in these things that we're going to be covering in the next couple of weeks. It could mean your life. Um, and so this is a statement of, of faith and belief, but it's also kind of a pledge of allegiance in a time in which the church is suffering uh, some of its more secure, severe persecutions historically. Other than the, the 21st century that we're experiencing right now, the highest percentage of people in the church are persecuted under the reign of Diocletian, who's, who's uh, the emperor right before the process that, that leads to the birth of the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed is definitely there during Diocletian's time. So you can imagine, in that period of intense persecution, um, only exceeded by the persecution that churches around the world are suffering today, people saying this creed right before they're about to be killed for their faith. And so I think it's just important for us to remember that, that this is a creed born out of persecution, and that the I believes in these statements are sometimes, uh, at the time, were statements of life and death, and sometimes they still are. And so, even today, in our worship, we actually say the Apostles' Creed more than any other creed. Um, it really should be the framework and you know, the, the bedrock of our belief. Yeah, you know, when, when somebody asks you, you know, I, jokingly sometimes, you know, the question, you know, what is your statement of faith? What do you believe? Well, it's the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. And if you use the Anglican Daily Office, you'll say the Apostles' Creed. Ten times Ten, a week. Ten, no. four, Fourteen times a week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> morning and evening prayer. Yeah, morning and evening prayer, you know, every single day. So morning and evening, Monday through Sunday. Yeah. So part of what happens after the Apostles' Creed is, is established and after the persecution ends is that as the church becomes illegal, um, now there are new challenges. So there are challenges that you suffer under persecution. 
being killed for your faith, suffering. Um, but then once Christianity becomes a little bit more comfortable, people start um, coming up with, with new innovations and new doctrines. Um, and this particularly happens around the idea of the Trinity. Now, if you look at all three of these creeds, and I hope that um, after this podcast, you'll take some time to actually read through each of them. We would um, do a podcast on the Athanasian Creed, but the podcast would essentially consist of us just reading the Athanasian Creed, because, brother, it is long. But take a look at all of them, and what you'll see is a basic Trinitarian structure. I believe, you know, there's a section about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's in all three of them. But the Trinity is a difficult doctrine, um, and it's a doctrine that is mysterious and hard to understand. And so what you see very quickly is that people try to simplify and make more understandable and acceptable to human reason, the Trinity. And this results to the church essentially saying, no, that's not right, a lot. And as they say, no, that's not right, they realize we're going to need a creed that gets puts a little bit more meat on these Trinitarian bones than the Apostles' Creed. And so with that said, as we work through these creeds, our primary aspect will be the Apostles' Creed. And that's going to be kind of our, our groundwork for everything. But as we get to statements that may be confusing, need some clarity, we are immediately going to turn to the Nicene Creed to have the Nicene Creed interpret the apostles. And then when we say, what does that mean in the Nicene Creed? Well, we're going to go to the foundation at all. Where does this draw from Scripture? So in conclusion for today, I hope we've laid a good groundwork for, first, Scripture and understanding the Bible in terms of the tradition of the church. Um, the Bible is truly God's word written, and it is that which is sufficient for salvation. So in some sense, you really can say, give me the Bible and I'll go it alone. But that is so empty compared to the tradition of the church that it's given us. And how do we, so then how do we look at the Bible and how do we move forward and say, this is sufficient, but how do I understand what it's telling me? And for that, we look to the creeds. How do we not become the Andy Stanleys who say, give me my Bible and I'll go it alone? Well, I don't understand this. It's by looking at the creeds, seeing how the creeds expound God's word written in a way that we can understand. And as we'll see it, over and over, the creeds are going to come back to that idea of the relational aspect of God to mankind, the Trinitarian nature of God, and the way that God desires to work through his church relationally to his people. And so in an effort to follow the creeds, our upcoming podcasts are going to follow that structure. We're going to start with a podcast on God the Father. We'll do a podcast on God the Son. We'll do a podcast on God the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to do one that focuses on that aspect that Jay just mentioned of how this works itself out uh, in the church, what the church looks like, um, and how the church is shaped by the Trinitarian nature of God uh, and by these other aspects that we've been talking about. So I think with all that said, I think it would be appropriate for us to close with the Collect for Trinity Sunday. And maybe we'll do an episode on this later, but real quick, a Collect is merely a prayer that's used in liturgical worship normally to collect all of the various themes and aspects of the readings on that Sunday and the prayers of the people and to collect them and bring them before God as an offering. Sounds good to me. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us, your servants, grace 
by the confession of a true faith, to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity, and in the power of your divine majesty, to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship, and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This has been Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. We hope you will join us next time as we continue to weep and imbibe throughout the church's year.